Well, it is indeed Palm Sunday, and there should be no surprise that Jesus has a crowd gathered with him on the Mount of Olives. If you've been reading through the, the Gospel of Matthew, you would have seen that here all sorts of amazing things have been happening. The untouchable have been touched. The unlovely have been loved. Uh, bellies have been filled, not once but twice. There was a feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. People are following Jesus. They're flocking to him because they're seeing in him the hope of the world. Now he's coming into Jerusalem in the way that the ancient prophets said that the Messiah would come by way of, Mount, of the Mount of Olives. Have you been there before? Have you been to the Holy Land? Two years ago, Julie and I led a, a group of 35 on a tour of that, that beautiful place. We ended our, our, our time in Jerusalem by traveling up to the Mount of Olives. There you can see down across the Kidron Valley and up on the other side of the hill, shining in the distance, is the city of Jerusalem. I, my, my heart was just pounding, feeling what it must have felt like, imagining what it must have felt like to stand there with Jesus, with the disciples, with the palms waving, with people shouting Hosanna. You know, we don't quite know for sure exactly where Jesus may have spent all of his time and his days in the Holy Land, but we can pretty well be sure that he was there at that spot at one time. I was so excited, I wanted to find a palm branch nearby and, and lead the group down the, down the mountainside over to Jerusalem. They, they opted to take the bus instead, but that, that was okay. And the crowd is fired up. The crowd that's with Jesus, they are ready. They're ready for King Jesus to come in and take over, take command, take charge, to show those, those Romans, show those Romans who's got the real strength, to show those wishy-washy religious leaders, the one in the, in the robes and the stoles, <laughs> to show the tax collectors, because no one likes tax collectors, to show anybody and everybody, Jesus is here and he's taken control. I saw a bumper sticker the other day driving around. It was in downtown Columbus and pulled up behind this car and it said, Jesus is coming and boy is he ticked. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, there's a part of me that would love to be a part of the crowd like that. I'd, I'd love to, to get into the crowd and say, yeah, Jesus is coming. He's kind of ticked off and he's taking command. He's taking charge. Yeah, boy, Jesus is coming. I'd, I'd kind of like that. There's a part of me that would definitely feel good in that place. Wouldn't it be fun? If all of us folks in the church could get back to where we were 30, 40, 50 years ago, when the church was at the center of the culture, when the church was in charge, maybe we could finally get some respect. Maybe we could cancel soccer games on Sunday morning, you know? Yeah, I hear a lot of amens on that one. <laughs> I served as a moderator of the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. First Community Church is affiliated with both the Disciples of Christ and the United Church of Christ. I was the moderator, sort of the chair of the board, for two years, from 2013 to 2015. The one thing I heard all the time from pastors, from lay leaders in the church, what's going to happen to us? What's our future going to be? Will the church ever matter again? Will we ever get back the power we used to have? There's danger there in those questions. You see, nostalgia, a nostalgic view of the way things might have been can actually lead to destruction in the present, can keep us from moving forward in faith. My, my buddy Derek is a preacher in Kentucky. He, he asks, how many churches sit around, listen to that phrase, sit around, remembering past glories and former accomplishments, hoping against hope that they can relive them all over again? 
How many churches, I want to know, get stuck trying to force the past into the present while missing the future that God has set before us? You see, nostalgia can function almost like an anchor. The, the people following Jesus down the Mount of Olives are, are ready to do just that. They've got a king who's ticked and tough and taking command, taking charge. They're ready. But here's the problem. Jesus didn't come to do that. He's not interested in power, at least not in that way. He did not show up to bring back the good old days, to, to bring back all the way things used to be. He came to lead the world to a gracious love, to a God full of mercy, tender-hearted, one whose arms one whose arms are as wide as, as heaven itself. Jesus came not to put down, but to lift up. Too often in the church, too often in our families, too often maybe even in our relationships with the ones we love the most between spouses. We, we look to the past and we wonder, why can't it be like it used to be? We have this nostalgic view of the way things used to be. But the problem is, as I said before, it becomes an anchor, holding us down, keeping us from moving into the new day that God has set before us. Jesus did not come for the good old days. He came to proclaim God's future and that it's here. Maybe that's why when we get to the end of the reading, a reading which I think you heard at the very beginning of the service from Matthew 21. When we get to the end of the reading, the, the hosannas and the shouts and the palm waving and all the rest have kind of died down and as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, someone says, who is this? It's a question for the entire city. The disciples know him. The people who followed him from the desert, they know him. But the city, they're not sure who this is. Who is this? And Matthew says the city was in, in turmoil. In the Greek, the word is seismos. Do you hear the relationship to the word seismic? It's as though an earthquake has shaken the city. It's as though Matthew is saying when Jesus comes, when the Spirit of God comes to us, things are going to get shaken up. Shaken, rearranged, redirected. When God takes hold of your life and your soul, things will not be the same. It's God's way of saying, wake up. What's going on in your life? As you look in the mirror of your life, and I look, I mean, beyond just the superficial image that you might see with a few wrinkles and maybe some hair that's not there anymore. No, not just that. I'm talking about the mirror of your soul. When you look at who you really are, and what's going on. It's those places where you feel broken, where you feel wounded. Those are the places where God wants to reach inside of you and make something new. I don't care if you're four or 94 or somewhere in between. Every one of us has something within that God even right now wants to take hold of and reshape, renew, redirect, reform, refresh. When the Spirit of God comes, there's some shaking going on. Several years ago, I did a funeral for a young man named Robert. He happened to be gay. He happened to die from complications due to HIV AIDS. At the funeral service, you could cut the tension with a knife. On the left side, it was a smaller church, a very small church, maybe, maybe space for a hundred or so. On the left side of the sanctuary were Robert and his, Robert's friends, most of them young men, on the right side were his parents, parents who loved him but never fully got around to accepting his orientation, and their friends, 
And I could see as I got up to give the funeral that there were folks looking across the aisle, not with joy at each other. The tension was thick, frightening, scary. A lot of anger in the room, a lot of anxiety. Well, I, I don't remember much of anything that I said in, in the sermon at all, except that at the very end, when it came time for the benediction, I walked out of the pulpit, I walked over in front of the communion table, and I stood there before that congregation with my hands raised, and out of nowhere, I don't know where the, how this happened, but out of nowhere, I paraphrased the Romans chapter 8, words that went like this, there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God, neither life, nor death, nor peril, nor persecution, nor sword, nor famine, nor anything else, not even one's sexual orientation can separate us from the life of God, the love of Jesus. Nothing can separate us from that love. And then I walked down the aisle. Well, really, I sprinted down the aisle. <laughs> when I got to the back, I was greeting the folks who'd been there, and I could, see, I could see someone coming in the line, a young man. He was agitated, clearly, maybe angry. When he got to me, he took hold of my hand. He said, do you believe what you just said? Do you really believe this? Does this church believe this? I want to know. And he pulled me in close, took my hand and pulled me in close. I could feel his breath on my face. Tell me, is there a church that believes this? Before I could answer, he was gone. I got to tell you, I was shaken. I was shaken, and never again, I determined in that moment, never again would I be afraid to proclaim the undying love of God for everyone, for the world. Never again. The entire story of Jesus, as it's told in, in Matthew's God, gospel, is about God's desire to come and to shake us up, to get our attention. Even the story of his birth. You know, Matthew 2 the wise men, the, the ones from the east, they come to Jerusalem. They visit King Herod. They ask, where, where will we find this one who's been born? And Matthew says that the king and all of Jerusalem was disturbed. They were disturbed. So right from the beginning, Matthew says, the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of God's spirit in our lives begs the question, now that God is here, what does that mean to your life? Where in your soul is a spirit ready to do some work? What part of you needs to be taken hold of and guided onto a new path? Is it your marriage? Is it your relationship with your kids? I cannot tell you how many times I've had people in my office over 20, 25 years as a senior pastor of people weeping over relationships that were broken. Is there one like that for you? Is there someone you know you need to call? What about your coworkers? Maybe friends at school. Where right now are you in need of a fresh start, a new day? Last summer, I was the keynote speaker for a, a high school church summer camp. About 110 high school kids from all around the Kansas City area were, were there. It was a summer camp uh, like Akita, just not as nice as Akita. <laughs> Don't tell them I said that, okay? We're not on TV or anything, are we, today? <laughs> At the opening night service, I was asked to give a brief introduction to my keynotes. Just take five minutes, they said, and so I did. I stood up and I told the young people, most of the time, the most courageous thing you can do in your life is just show up. 
showing up for school on a Monday morning, showing up for work, showing up to have dinner with your family even can be the most courageous thing you ever do. You've come, you've come to church camp, and you know if you've ever been to church camp, I told those kids, if you've ever been to camp, this is the place. It does seem to be the one place where God's Spirit really takes hold of you. It takes courage to be shaken up, to pay attention to your life, to the way God is calling you to live. At the end of the service, the leader of the camp stood and asked everyone to come to the front at the table where there were some paper, there were some pencils. Come and get a piece of paper and a pencil. We did. Guitar music was quietly playing. He said, now go back to where you were seated and write out a prayer request. Don't, don't make, write a prayer for your mom or your dad or your Aunt Lucy from Topeka. No, write, write a personal prayer request for yourself, something that you'd like for God's Spirit to work on within you. I went back to my seat. I wrote down, I'd like to have the courage to live the way I preach. 57 years old, still looking for courage. Others wrote their prayers. The leader invited us to come to the back and drop the prayer in the basket. Then went and go back out to our seat. We began to sing the little chorus, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then he invited us to stand. As we were still singing, the basket was taken to the back of the little outdoor chapel where we were gathering. And he said, as you leave, reach into the basket and take someone else's prayer. Don't take your own. Just reach down in and find one that's not yours. We all did that. And as I got to the back, I pulled one out. And it said on it, very simply, it was clearly a younger person, maybe a freshman, a ninth grader. How old is that? 14, 15? In simple words, it said, I'm so afraid, God. Help me. I don't know who wrote that. I've prayed for her or for him every day since I pulled that little prayer request out, telling God, asking God to let that one know that just naming the fear is the first step toward the courage that God invites us to have. This is what it means to have faith. Faith doesn't come when we have it all figured out. Faith doesn't come when everything's peppy and happy and full of joy and can be just perfect. No, those aren't bad things necessarily. No, faith comes truly when we take the risk to look at who we are and whose we are, and then the answer becomes, you are a child of God. Faith comes when we become like kids at church camp who are willing to take a heavenly risk. Back in the 1990s, I served on the board of directors for Amor Ministries. You, you know Amor Ministries, of course, don't you? That's the group we work with in Mexico. We go down there every year here at First Community Church to build homes with them. I've known about them since the 80s. When I was on the board of directors, I served with a man named Mike Iaconelli. Mike's in the resurrection now, but he's one of the greatest preachers I ever heard. He was just an amazing, powerful speaker, a, a, a just a tremendous preacher. Mike liked to say, and I heard him say this once in a sermon, that the biggest issue facing the church was not sexual temptation or addiction or alcoholism or, or, or the desire for more and more money or power or control. Those are not the biggest problems. He said the biggest problem in the church is dullness. I was hoping he wasn't talking to me when he said that. <laughs> the biggest problem in the church is dullness. We've lost our astonishment. These are Mike's words. The good news is no longer good, good news. It's okay news. Christianity is no longer life-changing. It's life-enhancing. Jesus doesn't change people into wide-eyed radicals anymore. It's time, he said, to find the church where the dangerous wonder of faith is proclaimed. Yeah, I love that phrase. The dangerous wonder of 
hear what Mike is saying. There's, there's nothing wrong with, with enhancing your life or being nice or kind. I had a whole sermon about that last week. But what Mike wants us to do is sit, sit up and pay attention to the life-changing power of the gospel that we've been proclaiming. He wants to know where's the dangerous wonder that comes with following Jesus all the way down the Mount of Olives, through the valley, up to Jerusalem, into the mess of our everyday lives. And that's the key, isn't it? Too often we want to skip the mess. Now let's just go around it. Let's, let's, go, let's, let's just not deal with that right now. Skip the messy stuff. But if we're going to be the church, we can't. We can never skip it. I hope most of you by now know that I'll be sending out an email to the entire congregation every Friday. If you've not yet received that, call the church office and let them know you'd like to get it and give them your email address or send me an email. I'll make sure we get it, we get it turned in. I received a number of replies. Most of them have said two things. One has been, thank you for doing this, thank you for doing this, and I will continue to do it. It's not that hard. It's a pretty easy thing, really. The second response I've been getting these last two weeks has been something like this. I can't name them. I won't name them, but several, many, many, many emails have come to my inbox saying, I want you to know about First Community Church. I want you to know that when my husband was dying of a tumor, it was this church that sent me a Stephen minister. She came not with words, but only with loving arms as she sat and wept with me at the bedside of my husband. Another one wrote and said, when my wife and I went through a horrible, ugly, terrible, disgusting, mean, nasty divorce, it was this church, without judgment, who gave me grace, the grace I needed to go on. I could, I could repeat email after email after email. This church is at its best. I already know this now. When we're willing to walk into the mess of the lives that we share with each other, and we pay attention. One preacher says, it's love at work when we pay attention to the other. There's a story told by Deborah Tan, and it's about her great aunt, a widow who had a love affair in her 70s. She'd been a widow for a long time, and as sometimes happens, things in her body had changed. She was overweight, her hair was thinning, her hands were gnarled from arthritis, her legs were misshapen from some other problem that she'd had, but she fell madly, crazily in love with this man down the hallway in the building where she lived. And he fell in love with her. He too didn't have any hair, and he was a little pudgy, and he had some weaknesses too, but they didn't care. It wasn't a romantic ideal, they weren't making a movie, they were just in love, deeply in love, crazy in love. Months after this affair began, she went out with some of her girlfriends for dinner. When she came back, he called her. He said, tell me what you talked about. Where did you go? How was your food? What did you have? And then, what did you wear? Deborah said, when my auntie told me that story, she started to cry. I asked her, Auntie, why are you crying now? And she said, do you know how many years it's been since someone wanted to know what I was wearing? Love pays attention. The church is at its greatest when we wade together into the mess of whatever our lives might look like. To hold hands. To stand together with the ones Jesus names as the least of these. You see, our greatness as a church will be found in the simple willingness to follow Jesus, not only when the parade is happy and, and peppy and full of excitement and joy, but also when the parade 
finds its way in the darkness of a day named Good Friday. Our greatness will be measured by our willingness to pay attention to the Spirit and to each other. In a few moments, our choir is going to sing the anthem, one of my favorite hymns, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I want you to listen carefully as they sing. Frankly, everything I've said this morning, maybe in most of my ministerial career, can be summed up in the final line. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. My soul, my life, our all. Nothing more, nothing less. Amen.